electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, a surge in economic optimism. Are Americans buying in to Bidenomics? Did Netflix price hikes pay off or did customers jump ship? We'll review the massive earnings report. More midair mayhem now for Boeing, an engine engulfed in flames over Miami. Ford and Stellantis pumping the brakes on EVs. Will GM finally cave on its electric ambitions? And Sports Illustrated's swan song, the iconic publication, finally throwing in the towel. We talked to the CEO who switched his business to a four-day work week and avoided layoffs in the process. All that and more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. And good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I'm Eamon Javers in a very snowy Washington, D.C., in for Brian Sullivan this evening. We have all of that and more coming up in our hour. But first up on Last Call, the tech-fueled bull run pushing the markets to new heights. The S&P posted its first all-time high in over two years. According to our friends from Bespoke, there have only been five longer streaks between record-closing highs since 1952. Not to be outdone, but the Dow also notched a record close. All three indices are now in the positive after a rocky start to the new year. All the attention was around the chip stocks today. AMD hit a fresh all-time high. Qualcomm, Broadcom, and Texas Instruments jumped more than 4% each. That helped boost shares of NVIDIA to another record close. The semiconductor stock has soared 20%. After just 13 trading days into the new year, NVIDIA wasn't the only MAG7 to join in on the fun. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, and Tesla all closed in the green today. Now tech faces a key test next week as Netflix, IBM, Tesla, and Intel are all set to report earnings. So a few big questions are weighing on investors tonight. Will this bull run continue? And is tech the play for 2024? So let's talk about all of it with our lead-off market panel, CIC Wealth Management Executive Vice President and Financial Advisor and CNBC contributor Malcolm Etheridge and Laffer Tangler Investments CEO and CIO Nancy Tangler. Nancy, let's start with you. Are you concerned here that the broadening of this rally that many expected has just not happened yet? Uh, no, I'm not, Eamon. I mean, I think there's still plenty of time, but I think we also need to put this in perspective. If you look over the last two years, the Nasdaq is actually down through the end of last year, down 2.4%. We're now in an environment where we're seeing earnings improvement, margins for the tech names are expected to expand earnings and revenues as well, much faster than the rest of the market. So if you're in a mode where you're in a slowing economic environment, these are the names you want to own with Fortress balance sheets. I think I read uh, an IBD study that said 
13 non-financial companies in the S&P have uh, 100, uh, over a trillion dollars in cash and investments. So that's where I want to hide uh, if I'm worried about a slowing economic environment. But we're also overweight industrials. Uh, we like uh, financials and not just the banks, but uh, an expanded view. So I think that, that the market, the the rally will continue to broaden, uh, but you, you've got to own these names because the secular yeah. narrative behind them is is very strong and, and will continue for a decade. Malcolm, over to you. If you purchase small and mid caps in the hopes of a broader rally, what do you do now? I mean, those guys are down. It's the big guys that have been leading this rally. You put more money into that group or do you stick with what's working? Yeah, I think kind of to, to Nancy's point that broadening is definitely going to be tested every single time the market starts to show some volatility here, right? Because the fortress balance sheets that she mentioned that tech companies have is really what we see as safety and stability in times when markets get rocky, where we used to look to bonds to be that ballast and hold us up uh, when the market started to get choppy. Now we see mega cap tech once again uh, coming in to save the day. And I think that trend is probably going to continue throughout the better part of this year as it's sort of the knee-jerk reaction trade anytime things get rocky. So, Malcolm, we're sitting here on a Friday night. Look ahead with me to next week because we've got key earnings coming up next week with Microsoft and Tesla. What are you expecting from this earnings season from tech? Are they going to put up numbers that justify the rally that we're seeing? Well, layoffs have persisted through 2023, uh, similar to how they started and, and ran all the way through 2022. I think in 2023, we had something like 260,000 layoffs among uh, close to 1,200 uh, tech companies, I, th I think, according to layoffs.fyi, their latest numbers. And so that is what's helping to improve those margins that Nancy mentioned and helping to make sure that tech companies are still going to show profits once they report uh, in the coming quarters. And so I do think that we'll still hear positive earnings from the mega cap tech names, which will once again help bolster uh, the money that flows into those names and take it away from what would have gone into, say, like an IWM looking for that small cap uh, trade. Yeah, so let's roll back the tape here, because Fundstrat's Tom Lee was on last call earlier this week. He was last year's most accurate strategist. He made this prediction on where stocks could be heading next. I think it's possible that we make a, a minor new high before the end of the month, and then we might have something like a 7% drawdown. So, Nancy, the question to you, we made that new record today, you heard Tom predicting, but do you think he's right? Should investors expect a major pullback after we saw the record? Yeah, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but yeah. one is also that it's an election year. And if you go back and look historically, you've always seen declines in the first quarter before the market takes off. So I think you want to use that weakness. Um, and for many of the reasons Malcolm mentioned, you want to use that weakness to add to the winners and um, and also the highest quality names across sectors. So I think we will be in for choppiness. We should. We get a correction about once every 12 months. That's good for stocks. But don't let it scare you out of the market. Uh, use it as an opportunity to add to holdings. So, Malcolm, the obvious question to you, we're at record highs. What do you buy, right? I mean, everything's expensive. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think that uh, to, to Nancy's point about the potential pullback coming, maybe you're not buying anything just yet. Maybe you're waiting uh, a couple of weeks to see exactly what's going to happen. Because, yes, we did just notch an all-time high, but underneath the surface, about 25% of the companies in the S&P have already retrenched. Uh, and from their all-time highs, they hit in mid-December and are below their 50-day uh, moving average. And for context, 
mid-December, we were at less than 10% of companies were, were in similar territory. And we haven't seen that kind of behavior uh, since about July of 2023, where the markets started to just go sideways for several weeks from there. And so I think maybe you're going to get a better buying opportunity than today at an all-time high. And maybe it's a good idea to just sit in that dry powder for a little bit and see what happens. All right. That's good advice, Malcolm. Sit tight for now. Malcolm Etheridge, Nancy Tengler, thank you both for your insights on this Friday night. Now let's take a look inside the market this week at our studs and duds. The biggest studs of the week, we just talked about chip stocks. AMD up 18.9% and Applied Materials up 11.5%, leading the S&P. Western Digital up 9.5%, also a big gainer on two big upgrades this week. The biggest duds, however, well, Discover Financial down 11.1%, says it's expecting more credit card delinquencies down the road. First Solar down 9.1%. It's already down 15% in 2024. Not a good year for them. Lithium producer Albemarle down 8.7% on news. It's cutting staff and causing expansion. Up next right here, yet another high-profile incident for Boeing. Lighting up the sky in Miami. Look at that airplane. Plus, Russian hackers targeting Microsoft executives. How far did the massive breach go? Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the you. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. And let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. These are the stories you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow and probably on Monday, too. First up, JetBlue and Spirit Airlines announcing they're going to be appealing the court decision that blocked a proposed merger between the two companies. Shares of Spirit are seeing a big pop after hours on the news, while JetBlue is down slightly. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us now with more. Phil, I guess the question for you now is with this wild ride, where do we go from here? Well, in terms of the appeal, uh, Eamon, it's going to take probably four to five months. That's the estimated time range for uh, most people have for how long it'll take for this appeal to be heard and then a, a decision to come down. The question is, do we really think that this will be a different decision on appeal than what we got from Judge William Young earlier this week, who agreed with the DOJ that JetBlue and Spirit would not be helpful for competition? Do we think the appeal will have a different decision? In the meantime, it gives some breathing room, if you will, for spirit, much needed breathing room uh, as they try to readjust their financial seat. 
You know, you wonder in this political climate with the Biden administration, the Biden DOJ so focused on antitrust and competition issues, whether the appeal really stands a chance. But the, I think the question now is spirit guided higher this morning. So what do you think is yep. next for them if the deal doesn't happen? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about spirit going under if this doesn't happen, right? Well, the appeal doesn't change their finances, that's yeah. for sure. While it may give them a, a path that they can see potentially in the future, in the meantime, they've got to deal with the fact that they've got $1.1 in debt that comes due next year. They said this morning, and when they uh, issued their new guidance, look, we're going to try to you know, redo that debt in some fashion. And if we can redo that debt, that'll buy them even more breathing room. So they still have their work cut out for them at Spirit because – you're looking at a first quarter where business travel or travel overall, I mean, this is the slowest yeah. quarter of the year for the airlines. Airfares are not rising. It's not a great environment here over the next couple of months. Things could improve this summer, uh, but it's a competitive market. And what Spirit is finding is they have got to do something about where they are financially because, what, they lost $150 million in Q3. Q4 is not expected to be a whole lot better, even with this guidance this morning. A lot of questions there. Phil, let me ask you this from the Department of Justice's perspective. I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. tonight. Uh, you know, the Biden administration very focused, as we say, on these issues of antitrust and competition. Who gets hurt, would the, would the Biden administration say, if this merger goes through? Is it the other airlines that get hurt? that get hurt here? Is it the customers of these two entities that get hurt here? Is it the employees of these two entities who get hurt here? Because maybe there's some layoffs when they combine right. the two firms. The argument from the DOJ, which is what the judge cited in blocking this merger, is that the customers of Spirit would be hurt. Spirit's a low-cost, ultra-low-cost carrier. So as a result, you are getting rock-bottom fares. Now, there are fees that go along with that, including paying for things like carry-on bags. And you can have an argument or a discussion about whether or not people want that. There is a segment, though, of the population that flies Spirit that likes having those ultra-low fares. And Judge Young earlier this week said, you get rid of spirit, you get rid of those fares. He didn't buy the argument from JetBlue that there's a JetBlue effect. That's the argument from the government, that if spirit goes away, you've got one less entity out there, fewer seats, if you will, offering those really low fares. Yeah, so you've got to preserve a cheap way for everybody to move around the country, yeah. even if you do have to pay those bag fees. Phil, uh, thanks so much for your insights tonight. Meanwhile here, Microsoft says it detected a cyber attack where hackers were able to access emails from top executives at the company. The hacks were carried out by the same group responsible for the SolarWinds cyber attack back in 2020. Microsoft says it doesn't believe the attack had a material effect on company operations. Shares of Microsoft are down slightly on the news. Joining me now to discuss this, Deepwater Asset Management managing partner Gene Munster. Uh, Gene, if the hackers can get into a CEO's email, how safe are regular customers of Microsoft feeling tonight? Well, they're probably not liking the headlines. They're liking the aspect that Microsoft has been clear that there no customer data was uh, breached. But of course, a hack nonetheless kind of opens up the door <coughs> that their data could be compromised at some point. I think there is an aspect for consumers that are getting some fatigue in terms of hearing about these uh, hacks. And so I think that the, the impact, each one that uh, happens has kind of less and less diminishing brand. But there is a more sinister side to this for Microsoft, and that, of course, is their impact to their security business. 
Now those customers, they're taking note on what's uh, being uh, what's happening here. And Microsoft, their overall business is 220 billion in revenue. That's what it was last year. Their security business is 20 billion in revenue. And so it's just under 10% of total sales. But that 10%, that security business, this is not a good read for Microsoft's security business. And I suspect that they're gonna get some defections that are gonna help some other, uh, some other companies. I guess the big question here, if, if you've got hackers getting into top executive CEOs email, the question is why and to what end? Do we have any idea as we sit here tonight, this story just broke a couple of hours ago, but do we have any idea what these hackers are planning to do with the information that they were able to steal? But at this point, we don't, but we do know this, is that when you think about the kind of the whole world order and the impact uh, technology has had historically, and then this new paradigm that we're entering, obviously related to AI, that is uh, from a, a geopolitical standpoint, this is kind of the new form of warfare. Yeah. It's digital warfare related to trying to gain the most access to artificial intelligence. And so again, they didn't get access to OpenAI and, and ChatGPT and the underlying model there. But I think that that is probably what's at play here. And I think it, it really speaks to the importance, and there's a lot of criticism in Washington about these tech companies, but the importance that all mega, the, the, mega, the MAG-7 have when it comes to, our, I think, national security. And I think that's ultimately what's going on here sure. is they are needling towards trying to get some edge on what is uh, going to be one of the competitive dynamics between countries in the decades to come. Yeah, and it's going to be dependent on about how long they were inside the Microsoft email, how much intelligence they were actually able to gain, and then what they're able to do with that if they are able to shift that to the Russian government. If you're Microsoft tonight and you're watching this, how do you war game out how much damage you've actually experienced? You, you'll have almost no way of knowing what the other side is going to be able to do with all the intel they got. Uh, very difficult to war game out from the, you know, what data has been lost. They're just going to want to do the forensics and see uh, what was what was compromised. That's uh, step number one. It sounds like they've been through most of that. Uh, and then uh, separately, I think that part of this, there's that aspect of geopolitical, but back to their security business. I mean, that's something else is they're going to be making calls to their customers come Monday. And I think this is a big win for companies like CrowdStrike and Palo Alto Networks, <laughs> Deepwater. We own both of those companies. But they're small companies, and, and Microsoft's got a big security business, and if they pick up a little bit of that revenue, it can go a long way for the, these uh, smaller security companies' growth rates. Yeah, scary stuff tonight, but there's always a silver lining for some company out there. Gene Munster, thank uh -huh. you. And finally, you. Netflix is set to release fourth quarter earnings on Tuesday. Investors are expecting to see the company increase earnings and revenue. But all eyes are going to be on forecast and subscriber counts this coming as Netflix has also signaled growth in its ad-supported tier, which has surpassed 23 million subscribers. So what should investors expect from Netflix earnings? Joining me now, senior research analyst at Needham & Company, Laura Martin. Laura, good evening to you. Thank you for being here. The success of the ad tier subscription has really fueled investor enthusiasm, this idea there's a whole new revenue stream out there that Netflix can tap into. What do you expect to hear on that front? Um, so they recently fired their head of advertising. So I expect the new head of advertising to be very upbeat. This $23 million million um, user number is an excellent number. We expect to hear them more about growth. The, the highest growth sector will be advertising in the Netflix bucket. But also I think the stock will move more on 
how many subscriber ads they have. Um, and I think the market is generally, the consensus is well above their guidance of about 8.6 million ads. And we really want to see where those additions are because sort of LATAM and APAC are about half monthly average of America. So we really want a lot of those ads to be in America, if possible, because those are $16 a month um, subscribers um, sure. compared to $8 a month subscribers in other geos. You know, the fascinating thing to me here is there's so much talk now that Netflix maybe has already won the streaming battle. You see that they are clearing out way ahead of everybody else in the streaming industry. And you wonder now how big that business is. Like, is the streaming battle worth winning at the end of the day? And are we going to get some indication of that from some of the numbers that we see from Netflix next week? Um, so I would definitely disagree. I don't think Netflix has won. But I think more importantly, I really like your question is if you win the streaming wars, did you lose because right. they're all losing so much money. Right. So yeah. Is it, a, is, is it a really race you want to win question. or even be in? <laughs> but I think the answer is, you know, Amazon Prime Video, do not count them out because, as you know, next week they're taking every subscriber they have and turning them into ad driven. And you're going to have to figure out a way to pay more to get rid of ads. So they're about to eclipse Netflix in terms of ad driven subscribers because all 200 million of their Prime Video subscribers are going to become ad driven overnight. So I would say Amazon is the only clear winner in streaming because they don't ever need to make money from streaming. I yeah. think Disney shouldn't count Disney Hulu out for sure. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the rest, but I think it is unclear that Netflix, which is a single line business, can win against much larger players, some of which do not ever need to make money in the streaming business. Yeah, so now the irony is we're all going to be paying all this money for all these streamers. We just showed some of the fees up there, and we're going to be watching ads. And that reminds me a little bit of cable television, right? Laura Martin, yep. thank you. Really appreciate your time tonight. Still ahead here, a new survey says consumer confidence is surging as inflation fears begin to fade. Will that be good news for the president's polling? We're going to debate that. Coming up next. Don't go away. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Get this. Americans are suddenly feeling good about the economy. Consumer sentiment just registered its biggest two-month surge since 1991. Lower gas prices, slowing inflation, a monster jobs report last month, and an all-time high today on the S&P 500 have many feeling good about their financial situation. Now, the economy has been strong for a while, but the perception of it has not. And that has weighed on Biden's poll numbers. The latest Gallup favorability poll nationally had Trump at 42 percent and Biden just a little bit behind that at 41 percent. So will these improving attitudes about the economy translate into rising poll numbers for the president? Let's debate it. Joining me now to discuss Actum Strategic Advisors co-chair, former White House chief of staff and former OMB director Mick Mulvaney and former HUD secretary and NBC political analyst Julian Castro. Gentlemen, uh, to both of you, thank you for being here. Julian, let me start with you, if I could. 
Uh, you look at these economic numbers, and if you're in the Biden White House, you say, this is rocket fuel for our campaign, right? Absolutely. Look, I mean, two things are true. People say perception is reality. Uh, when it comes to politics, especially the economy, perception often lags reality. And as you mentioned, look, under Biden, millions of new jobs have been created more than any other president. He started off with a 6.4% unemployment rate. Today, it's at about 3.5%. Uh, did the Chips Manufacturing Act and manufacturing is coming back to the country. Donald Trump talked about Infrastructure Week for four years and Joe Biden actually delivered on it. So there, there was an improving economy that is a reality. The problem has been People didn't feel like that. Uh, now, more and more, people are actually feeling like that. So as long as that continues, time is on Joe Biden's side. We still have more than 10 months to go until the presidential election. That's a lot of time. But Mick, the challenge here for any incumbent president running for a reelect, as you know, is translating those economic good feelings into actual poll numbers. And that can be difficult, particularly in this incredibly polarized era that we're in, when so many people's opinions are just hard and fast about the two candidates that we're likely to see in November. So if you were advising, not that you ever would, Mick, but if you were advising the Biden administration now how to translate economic gains into political polling, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, it's a fair question, Eamon. By the way, it's good to see you. Uh, Secretary, yeah. it's good to see you as well. Happy Friday night. Um, I tell them they, they got to change the message. Look, earlier today, Joe Biden tweeted out of his official account that America has the greatest economy in the world. We've got lower inflation and more growth than any other developed nation. That doesn't matter. People here don't measure themselves against what's happening in Germany or China or Japan or Brazil. They just know it's more expensive to live right now than it was four years ago when Donald Trump was in charge. A couple of months back when inflation was starting to cool off a little bit, the White House went out. Inflation had been 4% uh, one month and then 4% the next year, the next month. And they came out with a statement that said, there's no inflation. That, that's not right. People listen yeah. to what the White House is saying and saying, look, what they're talking about is not what I'm experiencing. It's not what I'm living in. It adds to that, that, that perception that this White House is disconnected from ordinary folks. And the bottom line is this, is that the, the economy is pretty good for, for, for the upper class, for rich people. A lot of folks are doing better. It's just not penetrating down into the, into the, into the middle class like it was under Donald Trump. So I think they've got a big challenge ahead of them. I've, I've never heard anybody say, Mr. Secretary, that, 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 that time was on, uh, on Joe Biden's side, but that's an interesting take on things. Julian, let me ask you this. We were just showing the consumer price index chart. And if you look at it, you know, the curve of inflation looks good for the president, right? You see it's rising, 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 and then it's coming down in the, in the current year. That looks great. But the political reality is that even though the rate of increase of prices is coming down, they're increasing less fast than they were before, prices are still high, right? It's a lot more expensive to go to the supermarket now than it was back in 2020. So if you're the Biden administration or Biden campaign, more importantly, how do you talk to people about prices when they see those prices in front of their face? They might say, okay, it's not going up quite as fast as it had been over the past three months, but still everything is expensive. Well, I think you have to point that out. The other thing that they can rightly point out is that from the time that Biden took office in January of 2021 through uh, late 2023, average wages actually outpaced that inflation. So at the end of the day, uh, most Americans actually do have more money in their pocket. That is something that they also feel. Uh, there is no doubt that the Biden folks are going to have to continue to uh, put this messaging out there in ways that people can understand, in ways that relate to 
what they see when they go to the grocery store, uh, when they think about making big purchases. Uh, fortunately, in addition, interest rates look like they're gonna come down in 2024. A lot of folks expect that. That's gonna help Biden, I think, in November. You know, all of this, it could go one way or another, but the signs point to Biden's political fortunes getting stronger and stronger in 2024. Yeah, we're showing the U.S. unemployment rate right now. And boy, do you see a steep drop after 2021. Uh, economy is strong. Unemployment is great. Jobs report is great. Mick Mulvaney, you were the chief of staff to Donald Trump in the White House. Uh, you're, he's now campaigning again. Uh, he, what would you advise him to say? I mean, I saw recently he said, uh, you know, I hope there's a big economic crash now so that, you know, Biden gets the blame for it. I mean, that presumably you wouldn't advise him to say that. What would you advise him to say as he's talking oh, about the would, economy in the run up to the election? I mean, it wouldn't make any difference. He wouldn't listen to me. He doesn't listen to anybody. He's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a gut politician, right? Look, it's look. A one man look, campaign. He really is. He's a he's a he's a news making machine is what we used to call him. But, uh, you know, the secretary's right. Things are trending in the right direction for Joe Biden. And to a certain extent, I was making fun of his age, but when he, that, you know, he does have some time on his side. He's got 10 months. And if people can start to feel a little better, then maybe the approval ratings go up. Here's if I'm a Democrat, here's what really worries me at the, at the end of the day is that these these answers to these questions. How do you feel about the economy? How do you feel about the border? How do you feel about anything? that that's not really the question that people are answering. What they're answering, many of them, is I think Joe Biden is too old to be president. And I don't want to tell yeah. that to a pollster. I feel bad about saying that because, you know, you just that's not really it's not comfortable to say that. But I, I just don't want to vote for him because he's too old. So I'll say bad things about the economy or about the border. That's a problem for them because he can change his policies on inflation. He can change his policies on the border. He changes policies on anything. He cannot change his age. And I don't know if that becomes the issue of this race. And Donald yeah. Trump is having his own recent issues with this. And I get that. But if Joe Biden's issue becomes the, uh, the central part of this race, I don't know how they change the message. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. I appreciate both of you coming on. It raises sort of a sacrilegious question in Washington, D.C. circles, right? Is this the election where it's not about the economy, stupid? It's about all these other things. We're going to be talking about that all year long. Mick Mulvaney, uh, Julian Castro, thank you both for being here tonight. And coming up here, EV sales off to a slow start in 2024. Now two big names are raising fresh questions about the future of demand for EVs. We've got a bonus TNT for you tonight. Never let it be said that this show didn't give anything for free. Tonight, XAI, that's Elon Musk's artificial intelligence company, reportedly securing $500 million in funding. Musk is aiming for a goal of $1 billion in funding for the company, as well as a $15 to $20 billion valuation. XAI is behind the Grok chatbot, which Musk also owns. Now, the path to auto-electrification is not paved with gold. Today, Ford announcing plans to cut F-150 Lightning production in an effort to optimize profitability. The reduction will go into effect April 1st. Stellantis CEO Carlos Taveras shared the company will not sell EVs or hybrids at a loss, a move many automakers have opted for in an effort to boost initial sales. So it's unclear what all this means now for the company's EV ambitions moving forward. Will GM make a similar move to push its EVs to profitability? CNBC.com auto reporter Michael Wayland joins us now for more. Michael, thank you for joining Last Call. Let's start there. What do you think GM is going to do now? 
Thanks for having me on. But yeah, um, GM and pretty much all the automakers right now are really taking a good hard look at their electric vehicle strategies. And they're trying to balance the EVs with profitability. And they're also trying to balance the federal tax regulations and the federal gas mileage regulations that are coming up. They need EVs and they were counting on EVs to offset their heavy duty pickup trucks, their full size pickup trucks, their Broncos and their Rangers which Ford is adding production to compared to the F-150 Lightning where they're cutting a shift. So they need these EVs to help them with the fuel economy standards. But as of right now, affordability is a huge issue. There's charging infrastructure issues. And honestly, consumers just, there's not enough demand like they thought there was going to be. And it's kind of this EV euphoria we've been talking about when money was free and people were putting down just reservations, anything they could get. It's really just over. So GM specifically, though, what if they're looking at this landscape, they're looking at Tesla and what they're doing, they're looking at Ford and the retrenchment there, what is GM going to do? They have been looking at Tesla almost too much, it seems like, because yeah. um, they have been chasing Tesla for several years now. Listen, Mary Barr has been CEO for 10 years. I've covered her through that entire process, and she has led the company through crisis after crisis after crisis beginning with the ignition switch, through COVID, through semiconductor chips, through two UAW strikes. But as of right now, her biggest ambitions right now, her biggest bets on the autonomous and electric vehicles aren't paying off right now. And I've been told by several people that this year, this year they have to execute on the EVs. They have a great number of launches coming up with the EV Equinox, the Blazer EV, which is currently under a stop sale because it had some major problems, the Silverado EV, this year they have to deliver she's in the or they're just going to be in more trouble yeah you know our our executive producer max myers made this point earlier we're talking about this we talked about netflix earlier in the show and how streaming has been a really great business for netflix but not necessarily everybody else and you wonder if the same picture is playing out in evs is is tesla uh, making a really good business out of it and everybody else kind of falling by the wayside is this a story of first mover advantage in both of those different industries where the leader is just out so far ahead that nobody else can catch him? What do you think? I mean, listen, we are going to experience exponential growth for EVs just by the sheer volume of models coming up, but it is at a far slower adoption rate than anyone ever thought. And as of right now, it is still Tesla's game. I think they were still at a 60% market share in the U.S. They are adding capacity. They're building new vehicles while people are just trying to catch up. In the past two or three years, everyone has said, we're going to catch Tesla. We're going to compete against Tesla. We're going to do this. And as of right now, they have new models coming out, but it is still Tesla's game right now. And that is going to continue for the foreseeable future. And when you watch when Tesla does a pricing adjustment, the whole industry has to follow because they are the industry at this point. And they are leading everyone which way to go, how they should do it. But yeah, in general, I mean, the automakers don't want to lose money when they sell a vehicle. However, as of right now, many of them are for the EVs. It is Elon Musk's world, and we're all just living in it, and so are GM and Ford. Mike Wayland, uh, thanks so much for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. Uh, meanwhile, okay. let's get to our Quicker Than the Ticker segment, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. A new wave of student loan forgiveness. The Biden administration just canceled $5 billion in debt for 74,000 borrowers. It was for those people part of the public service forgiveness program who've worked in public sector jobs for 10 or more years. 
Japan just became the fifth country to land on the moon. They launched their lunar lander this morning to demonstrate, quote, a pinpoint landing. The lightweight spacecraft used new technology to try to hit a very small target on the moon. Officials need more time to analyze whether the mission was accomplished. And another headache for Boeing. A Boeing 747 plane made an emergency landing in Miami after one of its engines caught on fire and flames shot out of the left wing. The Atlas Air cargo plane was headed for Puerto Rico. Thankfully, the five crew members on board made it back to Miami's airport safely. The FAA said in a statement it will be investigated. And real-life horsepower. Look at this. Two horses owned by local Amish people in Tennessee pulled out an SUV that was stuck in the snow. Now that is like a good name. I love that video. Look at those horses pulling that truck. It's amazing stuff. Sometimes, you know, brawn beats technology and good neighborliness always beats everything else. Meanwhile, coming up, the final buzzer sounds on a generational sports institution. What Sports Illustrated's demise says about the state of digital media. That's coming up here next. There have been so many iconic Sports Illustrated covers over the years. Remember the miracle on ice? Uh, a star is born with Michael Jordan. Look how young Jordan is in that picture. KO with Mike Tyson and the chosen one with LeBron, of course. But, but now it's just looking grim for one of America's most famous magazines. Sports Illustrated's owner is reportedly laying the magazine's staff off, most or probably all of its staffers. The company that licensed SI for publication missed a payment. Therefore, the company that owns the brand revoked the licensing agreement. So it's been a rough go for digital media in general recently. The LA Times is reportedly planning, quote, significant cuts. Condé Nast laid off staffers at Pitchfork, and late last year, Vice Media was hit with another round of cuts. So are we officially witnessing the death of digital media. Let's talk about it with New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor James Stewart and front office sports senior reporter AJ Perez, who first reported this AI, uh, this SI story. AJ, uh, let's start with you. What do you think is next here, if anything, for SI? I mean, you lay off your whole staff. That's pretty much it, right? Yeah. Well, the staff covered by the union, there's 90 days. Uh, they they can't do anything to them for 90 days. And during that time, uh, the company that has the rights, as you mentioned. Uh, we'll try to maybe renegotiate the deal with authentic brands who owns SI. And uh, and from there, really anybody knows, we, we could have a new operator. We could have the same operator, which is the arena group, maybe under a different, a less costly to them, um, you know, kind of deal. But that's all we, that's all up in the air at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, I'm, I used to be in the magazine industry. I remember that you do need writers to write the stuff that people read, right? I mean, that's sort of the basic proposition. Jim, I, I just wonder why digital media is, just doesn't seem in this moment to be working out. Your paper, the New York Times, has successfully transitioned the business model in a big way. How Huge. were they able to do it, you know, pretty much? How were they able to do it? And so many of these others just aren't able to make a transition. Well, the Times has managed to shift from a primarily ad-supported ad uh, model to a subscriber-supported model. And that is, um, that's really a, a dramatic change. I don't think in the, in the heyday of print, publishing any of us realized how much ads were subsidizing those products and how little we really paid of the cost of that. But the Times has uh, been able to you know, establish that brand 
reach an economy of scale through subscriptions that people are willing to pay for the product that they produce. And it's it's really going pretty well. I mean, if you can get to the break-even point and then you add subscribers, there's no marginal cost here. So that's all additional profit if you can get there. But not many are. I mean, let's let's face it. The bulk of the advertising market has been siphoned off by the big tech companies. You know, the Google, the Facebooks, targeted ads, and it's very, very hard for a standalone publication to reach the level and to manage to get the advertising dollars to sustain an operation like that. So no, anybody and who can't get subscription support is struggling. Ironically, one success story in that space, in the sports space, is the publication The Athletic, which was acquired by The New York Times. It's a great product. I mean, they started out as an independent. Uh, they do long-form sports journalism. They do investigative stuff. They do crazy, interesting, fascinating features. Now all that stuff is in The New York Times, and you wonder why Sports Illustrated couldn't have done that and seen something similar happen. Well, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry, exactly, because uh, it, let's, the, let's go to Jim on that one, because that's oh, a New sorry. York Times specific question. Well, I was going to say it's so ironic because Sports Illustrated was famous for launching the careers of some fantastic journalists and, and that's great what writers. They did. And that was yeah. their niche. And then, you know, the athletic came up with a dedicated, you know, online product. And by the way, you know, the New York Times did shut down its regular sports department. The athletic is now I mean, some of the sports reporters moved into other areas, but now the athletic has taken taken over that niche. So yeah. you're seeing that kind of with the cooking model. The New York Times is creating these sort of silos within that umbrella to get additional subscribers to pay for it. But again, the key is what you, can you produce that people will actually pay for? And that yeah. is that takes a big investment. Yeah. Fascinating, though, to see a, a digital sports startup eat the sports section of The New York Times, basically. AJ, if you right. had to diagnose this, why would you say The Athletic was able to succeed and have an exit, right, for the entrepreneurs who were behind it to go to The New York Times, and SI just wasn't able to figure this out? Oh, well, it's kind of funny. A lot of the people who started The Athletic, uh, as it built up its national ranks outside of their local roots there, came from SI. There, a lot of them, yeah. several editors, several reporters, and yet The Athletic is still about to break even at this point. Because the New York Times, uh, after they bought them, you know, had the runway, gave them the runway to to uh, you know become profitable or close to profitability, and that's what this needs. And when you Maven, who became the Arena Group, you know, they were overleveraged from the start. One of the first things they did was layoffs. Second, one of the second things they did was turn the weekly print product into month to to biweekly, and then sorry, price a month, and then and then monthly yeah. after that. So. Yeah, look, I mean, sometimes it's just better to be the nimble startup, uh, you know, not burdened by all this legacy stuff than it is to be the big giant brand, even though that brand name is so iconic. Uh, Jim Stewart, AJ Perez, thank you both for your insights this evening. Coming up, a wave of layoffs hitting tech companies and beyond. But our next guest says this one big change saved his company from having to cost cut. We'll talk to the CEO coming up next. Welcome back to Last Call. Boy, it is hard to go a full day without hearing about layoffs these days. 
but one CEO managed to avoid laying off employees by transitioning to a four-day work week, and that CEO is with us here tonight. Joining us now is Procurify CEO and co-founder Aman Man. Uh, Procurify is a Vancouver-based spend management software company with roughly 180 employees. Aman, thank you for joining Last Call. Explain to me your idea here about a four-day work week. We're sitting here, we're all working now on a Friday, so I'm really interested in how you did this. <laughs> yes, hi, Aman. Thanks for having me today. Um, you know. Procurify was originally built for the worst of times. So ultimately, you know, we saw the way businesses reacted to spend and we wanted to build a, you know, purchasing system to manage all that spend and AP automation to allow organizations to think differently. And when the time came for Procurify in 2020, you know, you saw that the world stopped spending money. And ultimately we wanted to bring our values forward of compassion and creativity and my personal passion to bring, you know, capitalism and compassion together. And we, at, we went to the organization and we asked, hey, you know, there's a pressure to, you know, do 25 to 30 percent layoffs. What if we all cut our spend, uh, cut our, um, you know, salaries by 20 percent and everyone unanimously came to the table, almost unanimously to the table to say, let's do it. And we so everyone takes a pay uh, cut, but everyone gets a workday cut also. And, and were, yeah. there, were there people who felt like I don't want to do that? I'm going to go find a full time work somewhere else. Or did everybody stick with the plan? Yeah, unfortunately, we have one person that just couldn't work with them for their lifestyle and you know yeah. the circumstances they had at that time. But majority everyone came on board, which was very exciting. And you know the right thing to do was reduce the time. And then ultimately, we saw a difference and a change in the business from there. We only have a short time left, unfortunately. But I'm so curious. It's it's one thing to sort of talk about compassion, you know, in theory, right? And capitalism in theory. It's another thing when you have to get the work done. Are you finding that people yes. can get everything done in four days that they were doing in five before? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I believe, a, light, a game changer with the balance of life, but also the commitment to the organization. There is a psychological safety that's built. And you know, over the last few years, we've hit record-breaking numbers on our side of our business. We have more care for our customers than ever before. And honestly, last year we raised uh, a funding round, I think, when almost no one did. And we did it as a substantial up round. Aman, it's a fascinating project that you're working on. I wish you all the best with it. I might suggest that idea to some of the executives around here, but maybe without the pay cut. Uh, we'll see. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so and much. Singer, songwriter, actress, and philanthropist, tonight we're paying tribute to the one and only Dolly Parton, because today she's celebrating her 78th birthday, which gives us an excuse to play this iconic song. And that was 9 to 5, one of Dolly Parton's iconic songs. Really the sound of a generation there. Of course, that was all before I was born, right? An illustrious career. She's sold more than 100 million records. She's also done amazing charitable work. Last Thanksgiving, she donated a million dollars to the Salvation Army. That helped feed more than 2.5 million people in need. So we can say, happy birthday, Dolly. And that's it for us. Thanks for watching Last Call tonight. And now I can say, weekend. Good night. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. 
don't give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.